Imagine experiencing Napoleon's Battle of Waterloo in 1815. The weather, the damp earth and grass, the gunpowder, the leather, the horses, all by smelling through a scent. And imagine smelling Napoleon's favorite perfume that he wore on the day of his defeat in that battle, a perfume called Aqua Mirabellis by Farina. He used it to mask the terrible smells of battle, but also to stay healthy. Or what if you could smell Cleopatra's famous perfume, Mendesian, through a carefully reconstructed composition so you can better understand the historical past and gain insights about the way she perceived the world through scent? Well, if you're curious about that, if you love history and smelling as much as I do, I think you're really going to enjoy my conversation with today's guest. Because we're going to talk about how experiencing smells can not only inform our past, but can also provide new insights and perspectives, ones that we can't simply get by looking at a painting or reading a history book. So let me introduce you to my guest today, Caro Verbeek. Caro is an art and sensory historian based in the Netherlands who has a PhD in art historical smells, specifically on the role of smell in art history and museums. Not only does she teach courses on the senses to art and medical students, she also helps promote smelling as a skill in academia. Caro has a wonderful TED Talk called Inhaling History and Smelling the Future, which you have to check out. And she's also widely published, including in the New York Times and NPR. And she's got a great new book coming out this year on the cultural history of the nose that I'm so excited for. Currently, Caro is a curator at Kunstmuseum The Hague, where she's developing sensory tours related to Mondrian. So before we get started, I did want to mention that I had a few technical difficulties on my end, so I apologize for my audio. I don't want to keep you any longer, so enjoy my conversation with Caro Verbeek. This is An Aromatic Life, the podcast that aims to shed light on our beautiful sense of smell and increase its profile in a culture dominated by sight and sound. My name is Frau Gagalia. I'm a certified aromatherapist and smell coach who spent over 20 years in and around the fragrance industry. What I know for sure after all these years is that our sense of smell is powerful, yet is so underappreciated. There's so much we can do to harness our sense of smell to be well. So join me as I explore this mesmerizing sense from all different angles and learn what it can do for you. Enjoy the show. Hey, Kalu, welcome to An Aromatic Life. I'm so glad to have you here today. Hey, Frauke, so nice to see and hear you. Especially. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, I'm excited to talk to you. So excited. I've been wanting to talk to you for a while. So I know my uh, listeners are going to love hearing what you have to say because you're a smell historian. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I'm an art historian and I'm specialized in the sense of smell. So you could also say smell historian. That's what I often call myself, indeed. Yeah, yeah. It's just a nice catchy phrase smell historian it's good um i think i was watching your ted talk a while back which everybody needs to check out i'm going to put that in the show notes because it's just a wonderful talk oh thanks so uh, much yeah 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 and one of the things you said in there i think was history can tell us a lot about smells but sometimes smells can tell us a lot about history I think that's one of the things you said in there that I wrote down I, mean, I wrote down so many things from that ted talk so it, it was so great but i just thought that was so great because 
most people, when they think about history, they don't think about smells. It's just not something that comes up. We're such a visual society, wouldn't you say? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't uh, blame anyone for that because our education system is completely focused on language and of all the senses, most on the sense of sight. And when we read in books about smells, there are no smells. So we, when we then talk about smell, finally, in an academic context or even in grammar school, it's often in the absence of smell. So how can we really learn to relate words to smells and what smells, how they can inform us if they're always absent? And that's what interests me. So when I started lecturing, um, when was it? I think in 2010, I brought an aroma jockey, just like a DJ or a VJ, I brought a, an AJ, so that the, my lectures could be illustrated with sense, because only that in that way, we can really learn something about smells and, and see if they can tell us something more about the past. It's through the experience itself. Yes, yeah, you need experience. And uh, lots of sense historians would say, yes, but that's subjective, but then, I think about art history. In art history, would you go to a symposium on Rembrandt without showing any images? Should we only read about Rembrandt and look at it? We need to combine what we learn from texts with what we learn from the actual experience. Oh, I think that's wonderful. I have so many questions for you about that, but I wanna take a step back. Um, I kind of want to start, this is the question I ask all my guests when, um, when they come on, and that is, can I ask you, what does the sense of smell mean to you? The sense of smell, it's, it's a highway. It's a highway to so many places and memories. It's also, it has also become part of my identity. I'm incredibly shy and studying smells, working with smells. Um, it's, it's like an anchor, something to hold on to. And you know, just as well as I do and all the listeners, when you meet another smell person, you feel at home right away. You can start talking. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Good conversation. So it's that. It's also the relation to my child and to my partner. It's the change of seasons. It's really being connected, I would say, closely connected to your environment. And yourself. Yeah, no, that's great. Exactly. I agree with you completely. So when you were growing up, did you think much about smelling or smells? Is it something that was in your life? I know for me, I didn't think about it much at all. If I reflect back compared to how obsessed I am with it now. How about yeah. you? No, I didn't think about smells, but there were many important smells in my childhood. And the first one that comes up spontaneously is the smell of my goat. Oh. We used to have a goat, and I don't, I don't know, it's a, it's a bit uh, greasy, it's a bit cheesy, it's a bit salty, it's very warm, and I loved my goat, so that's a very uh, positive smell, and I think a smell not many people knew. I think we were one of the few people that had a, had a goat. And, uh, in your backyard, or were you on a farm? We lived in the north of the Netherlands, in the, near Groningen. Okay. And we had quite a large garden. I mean, it wasn't a, a tiny village, but we did have a, quite a, a big garden. Um, 
our goat was, yeah, you lived in the garden or she, it was a she. <laughs> okay, so that's very cool. I like that. So in this village, were there, are there other smells that you can recollect? Yes. Is it just? Yes. We lived very near a stinky canal. Oh. Uh, yeah, dumpster deep. And especially in summer, it could, it could smell, um, oh, well, kind of, well, it, it's, it smelled pretty bad, <laughs> actually. <laughs> Uh, because the because the water was stagnant and then it became warm, there were a lot of plants, uh, dead fish sometimes. Oh, lovely! <laughs> uh, could get stinky, uh, and it was just the water would so, just sit there. So that's the problem, right? Yeah, and then it just, yeah, the aroma exactly. would just grow. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, if you say that you didn't think much about smells back back then, um, how did you even? You know, how did you even think about becoming a smell historian? If I had even known something like this could exist, I probably would have pursued it too. But I would have never even imagined something like this could oh. be a job or a career. And I think it's so wonderful. You didn't either. You didn't either. You didn't either. Okay. No, absolutely not. It, it's because I, uh, I studied art history and okay. I was so visually oriented um, that a certain smell really struck me. And I know exactly when this happened, a decisive moment in my life. It was 2001. And with all the art history students, we visited the Venice Biennale. Um, and there was this really strong, spicy scent there. And I remember thinking, what is this? What is this smell doing here? It's so, it's bothering me and it's really disturbing my aesthetic gaze. Yeah. And then hundreds of meters ahead, I saw the source of the smell and it turned out to be a work of art. Ernesto oh. made it, uh, We Fishing the Time it was called, and it consisted of a lycra bag spending from the ceiling, suspended from the ceiling, filled with curcuma, cloves, um, well, very spicy. And then I thought, okay, smell can be part of art. This is this is amazing. I have to do something with this. And that's when it all started. So in 2001, because I, yeah, because I was so surprised. You know, it's funny when you, when you just told that story, I was thinking, oh my gosh, if I had that epiphany, if I had that experience, I'd want to, uh, the people around me that are with me, you know, I'm sure you went as a group, right? Yes. This, this event. Did you just tell everybody, look at that or smell this, smell this. Do you smell that? You know, were you, or did you keep it to yourself? Were you kind of like, is this something only I'm experiencing or should, should I uh, tell everybody around me this is something we should be exploring? Is this something At that point, uh, I was alone because we were given some time off by, by our professor and I was just wandering there and uh, it's, it's a large um, premises, right? It's, it's called the Arsenale, so in, in Venice, um, weapons were stored there, so it's a huge terrain and I, I didn't see any of my peers Okay. students so I just experienced it and I think it was a couple of weeks later when we had to decide on a topic for our thesis that I decided hey this could be a topic but everyone then said no that's not a topic I are you crazy <laughs> that's why I asked the question because I thought somebody's going to say this is crazy or don't even yeah. bother it's not worth it right yeah, most people, my friends, my family, except my professor, he said, hmm, 
yeah, just do it. I love that. Still very grateful to him. So I understand that you find it fascinating to watch people smell things. I read Mm -hmm. that somewhere and I thought that was so great. Tell me about that. What do you observe when you see people smelling? Yeah, I wrote a blog post on it and I I added pictures of people that are smelling. And it's intriguing because you never know what they are smelling. It's different from seeing people touching because you can imagine by looking at surfaces what something might feel like, but you cannot know if they're smelling a bottle. Um, what they're smelling but something happens in the in the facial expression you can see that they turn inwards and um, some close their eyes there's this concentration maybe disgust that can also happen or bliss Um, yeah I mean those facial expressions do not lie those are so sincere and that's what I love about seeing people smelling because you're, when you smell something, it's a, it's a physical experience. It's, it's a bodily experience, right? We think it's all in the mind, but it's your, your body's responding to what it's smelling. So that's why you have all these facial expressions. You have, you know, shoulders can go up, they can get tight, they can relax. Yeah, the whole body is involved. You're right. All right, I want to get into these historical smells because you have probably so many great stories to tell. So let's get into all things smelling in history. First of all, could you do me a favor and define what a historical smell is? Yeah, it's it's a bit of a vague term. So you could say that any smell that um, was once there in the past can be considered a historical sense. I would like, I study historical sense that are related to um, important happenings, events such as um, the Battle of Waterloo, that's, that's an example, or to objects artifacts such as palmanders um, or works of art. Wigs, I think. Wigs, yeah, absolutely. Also wigs. Uh, So it could be that I just go to a depot and uh, sniff objects. I call it depot sniffing sessions. Uh, It's so much fun. I want to come. Yeah, yeah, we should do it together sometime. Just sniff stuff in in cellars and Yeah, so many objects have have amazing smells, of course. And then there are the lost smells. Although I do think that many smells, we think they're lost, but some scents can linger for hundreds of years. Uh, I mean, um, Napoleon's wife, yeah, her uh, quarters still smell of musk. And I've smelled ancient perfume bottles, ancient Roman perfume bottles. They still smell. I've smelled uh, apothecary jars from the 1500s that still give off a scent. Um, But of of course, some scents disappear forever. And not so much the scents, but combinations of scents. Because most smells are still here. Uh, We just don't encounter them that often or something like burning coal it's it's becoming more rare yeah peat burning peat um yeah so if if those smells were important for a community or something that happened or an object then i would say it's a historical sense one of the things that i read i think so you have these blog posts which are incredible again i'm putting that in the show notes people you have to read (laughs) caro's blogs because they're really fascinating um so it says, what do you mean when you say just like music and art, 
smell is a part of our heritage. Why is that so? Yes. Um, we think about heritage, we think about tangible things, about objects. Of course, there's also intangible heritage. Music and rituals are part of intangible heritage, which are not physical. But I would say sense, they're both intangible and tangible. In a sense, well, they're made up of molecules, so they are material. And they're intangible or immaterial in a sense that they're part of rituals, um, of uh, diets, of um, recipes, uh, all those things are part of um, intangible heritage. And it's something that we should cherish, preserve, and in many cases, uh, reconstruct. In music, of course, when you have sheet music, you can play the piece of music again. And I think we should look at smell just like music. We don't need to find the original molecules. At least I don't think we, we need to. Okay. We just need the sheet music and then reconstruct uh, the smell. Okay. And then of course also find out, okay, how was this smell experienced? Not just recreate the smell, but also recreate- the context kind of. Absolutely, yeah. Context exactly. that smell was in, which I, I agree. And start recording this. I think you also wrote somewhere that it would be great for everybody to just start writing down smells in, in their life experiences and record them in a journal so that once you pass away or pass on, you can have that journal for people to get a better understanding of what yeah. you experienced in your life. I thought that was such a great idea, something I'm gonna start doing. <laughs> you, you, you've re-narrated it in an even more beautiful way. Uh, yeah, that's a great idea. I think I've said something like that um, also for people suffering from dementia, although we know it doesn't work for everyone, especially mm -hmm. people suffering from Alzheimer's also lose their sense of smell. But um, of course, you can only trigger childhood memories when you know which smells to choose, uh, which smells were important in your youth. And often that's not, you cannot recall that by thinking about it. You have to experience it and then you can say, aha, so that smell triggers that and that memory. It's yeah. not something that we can intellectually uh, approach intellectually. So yeah. that's why it's a good thing. Every time you have a Proustian memory, that's a memory that's, well, your, your listeners probably know what it is, but that elicits an early childhood, very vivid uh, childhood memory. And um, when we write those down, yeah, our, our, um, children can read about it and they can maybe bring those smells when we're in a home yeah and and we can recall our own childhood just by listing these these moments yeah no it's it's so true I, I think I'm going to start to try to do that more consciously and I just thought that was a beautiful thing you wrote it in the blog so I'm just rephrasing what you said already <laughs> so it's your idea for sure <laughs> Um, so why do you think it's so important for us to understand smells in history? What, what richness can it provide that mm. we're not getting just by going to a museum now and continuing as we are now? What, what, what dimension does smell bring? Um, well, we all know, we just talked about it, that smells elicit early childhood memories, but I think they can also evoke collective memories. Oh. Um, so from our own 
uh, lies from our own childhoods that we collectively experience, I don't know, maybe going to church or going to the seaside or having a certain, eating a certain dish, which changes every decade. Huh? Um, every decade, other dishes are popular. Yeah. Uh, but I think it can even connect us to a past that we haven't experienced ourselves to elicit um, a historical sensation. This is a term by a um, Dutch cultural historian, Johan Huizinga, and he describes the historical sensation as when you experience a tactile impression, music or a procession, so when you really experience something from the past that's reenacted, mm -hmm. not only do you feel more connected to the past, you also get a glimpse of what it was like. So you also get more knowledge about the past. And I sent historians debate about this. Is it really true? Is it just experience or is it also a knowledge that you can gain? I think you can definitely also gain knowledge. I agree. I agree. Experiencing. Uh, experience can inform knowledge and the other way around. Once I've experienced sense that are described in historical texts, uh, I, I'm better able to recognize olfactory elements in texts. And I know, okay, they mentioned patchouli. I know that it's very earthy and sharp and it has a large uh, reach, a large volume. Yeah. And all those things are important to know. And those um, characteristics are trends historical. So, 300 years ago, someone would have described patchouli as earthy and sharp as well. Of course, the connotations and the associations change, but that doesn't mean that we cannot um, smell on a more formal level, describing sense, linking those to historical, those descriptions to historical texts, etc. I hope I make sense. <laughs> oh, no, no, it does make sense. It does make sense. Um, I was gonna ask you, how do you even research historical smells? If you can't physically go and smell an artifact, how do you, what's your process? How do you go about, um, yeah, researching smells? Because there's yeah. not a lot of literature on it, right? As you said. More and more. Uh, we, oh, there is, okay. We go through an olfactory renaissance when it comes to history. Lots of history books about smell appear the past oh. two years, quite a few. Really? So uh, lucky us. Yeah, uh, yeah. I study the recent past as well. For my PhD, I studied the role of smell in futurism. Futurism was an, uh, an art movement um, between 1909 and 1945, let's say. Mm -hmm. And so many, they, they wrote a lot of manifestos and letters. I looked at photos to see if I saw any olfactory elements. That's also something you can do, of course. Um, but in those letters and manifestos, sometimes they mentioned perfumes, perfumes that are, that are out of fashion. But then I collect old bottles and old recipes, and I worked with IFF, mm -hmm. and they did gas chromatography on those old perfumes. They used common sense to find out, okay, these top notes go together with these heart and these bass notes because the top notes are, of course, by long gone. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's something uh, that we did. And sometimes they mention really simple scents such as Brazilian coffee. Actually, that was a scent mentioned by Marcel Duchamp for his 1938 exhibition. Uh, yeah, roasted Brazilian coffee beans. 
1942, the Surrealist exhibition apparently smelled of cedar. I don't know which type of cedar, but I think since Marcel Duchamp smoked a lot of cigars, uh, that it's the pencil cedar because that's what used what's used for the boxes to um, carry cigars, uh, and and that way, yeah, you can you can figure out a lot about smells. Uh, and of course, when you display them in a museum, you always communicate to your audience. Um, hey, this is historically informed. Maybe it's not exactly the same, but this is the context, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and I think it's always more true to reality eh, to then make people smell cedar even though you don't know which one uh -huh. eh, you make informed guess it's more informative than not having any smell in that exhibition because that would be even more violent to uh, historical reality it also makes people aware of hey artworks had smells and uh, already in, in the 19th century and the early 20th century. And I'm always just looking at odorless pictures. This is not right. <laughs> so that's what I would like people to become aware of. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I wish you could, you know, everybody would just do this all over the world. It seems like it's in the Netherlands that you are most active, actively doing all of this, aren't you? I just yeah, that's, that's right, yeah. So everybody listening, if you know somebody who's in a museum somewhere in the part of the world that you are, I, I hope we expand this to other parts of the world. I think it's just, it's such an incredible thing to Oh yes, I imagine. I've, I've never experienced it because around here there's, I, I, I you know, there's nothing, so. Mm, sometimes, um, and I didn't mention this before, but another reason to use smell in museums is to engage uh, blind and low-sighted people. Because that way they can have access to heritage and artworks that they usually cannot get access to mm -hmm. because it's also visual in museums. But artists, of course, often want to convey concepts, emotions or tactile sensations. So we don't necessarily need our eyes to obtain that same emotion or, or message. And if you can capture that message in smells, then blind and low-sighted people can can also experience art or artist or, or events like uh, the Battle of Waterloo. Yeah. And this happens, it does happen in the United States, only at the Department uh, of Inclusivity, I think it's called. Oh, good. Maybe I'm not saying it right. At the, uh, the Metropolitan Museum. Oh, good. I'll have to check it yeah. out. The use smells at the Metropolitan Museum, but for this uh, specific group. So then I have to ask you, um, I work a lot with people who don't have any sense of smell, people who are anosmic. And that's another, I guess, dimension, I would say. You still want to talk about smells and history, yet you have people who can't experience the smell when you when you offer it to them, right? So you yes. have to do it through language, I imagine. Is there is there any program or any is anybody doing anything for the anosmic community? Yes. Um, I was to be honest, really surprised, but there's a quite a, a big anosmic community, of course, since COVID is even even bigger here in the Netherlands. And we have this uh, stift, uh, this foundation, sorry, <laughs> I'm switching to Dutch. It's called reukensmaakstoornis.nl. Okay. So taste and um, smell disruptions, literally. And they uh, reached out to me, to my surprise, saying, they asked me, can you please give us a center tour 
through the Rijksmuseum uh, because anosmic people would like their partners to learn more about how to describe smells and we would like to know more about the history of smells because that way we can convince smelling people, most of the people in the world, hey, smell is an important sense and it was important in history. So don't belittle me because I, because of course, you know better than I do that this isn't always taken seriously yeah. when you have a sense of smell. Sure, well, that's great. Again, be the Dutcher moving forward. So we need to learn from you all. <laughs> so thank you. I'm glad that's, I'm glad that happened. What's the most interesting historical smell you've ever smelled? Is there one that you find the most interesting that you were kind of? Yeah. Ooh, so many to choose from. Uh, <laughs> well, then give us a couple. You don't have to Just give me a couple. Ah, yeah. What I really, really find really intriguing is the, the sense called spikenard. It's mentioned in the Bible quite a few times. Mm. It's endangered and, now as a species. I'm oh, it's endangered. Like, yeah. It still grows in Tibet. You, you might know this better in the Himalayas. It, it might, but yeah, but people in other places where they're growing it, it's just on the. Um, oh, yeah. But anyway, go ahead. It's very. Yeah, and yeah, environmental issues and smell is also a big topic, of course. Yeah. 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 But the scent, um, I have smelled it because it's mentioned in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament. And, in relation to the anointment of Jesus's feet by Mary of Bethany or Mary of Magdalene. They're, they're sometimes confused in art history. And there are many paintings of Mary of Magdalene with her ointment jar. And it really gives another dimension to visitors if you bring this sense. And what struck me when you bring this sense is always 50-50, 50% hates it, 50% loves it. 50% says this is, smells like cheese and it's rotten. 50% yeah. says it's earthy. Wow. I'm thinking it's kind of like cilantro. Is it called cilantro? When yes, some people cilantro, yes. Yeah. Italy and others do not. I, I'm almost thinking it's something physical uh, that cannot, cannot just be explained culturally because it's most of the times it's because of your cultural and personal background. And why you like or dislike a smell, but in this case, yeah. So I think that's, from that's, yeah, the molecules, some in, in your olfactory neurons, they're not picking up certain ah. um, chemical compounds, is my guess. It's ah. the case with cilantro too, yeah. Okay, so the people that smell cheese, maybe they don't get the whole range. Yes, they're getting a different range of chemical components from the spike mark, perhaps, than this is enlightening. Okay. <laughs> Have you smelled it? I yes. have spike nard essential oil. Yes, I've smelled it. And what is yeah. it to you? Cheesy or earthy? Earthy. Yeah, to me too. It's, it's pleasant. It's very pleasant to me. I like it. I like it's it. Very pleasant to me. It's also very purple to me somehow. Yes, me too. Yeah, well. yeah? <laughs> purple to me as well. Yes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's because of our backgrounds, both being from, you know, Holland, Germany. I don't know. Maybe that's something in our, in our heritage. I don't know. But yeah. uh, so that's the most interesting. And then, is there one that surprised you, where you just thought it was going to be one thing, and then it turned about to be something hmm. else? Anything? Well, it was a long time ago, but the first time I smelled myrrh, uh, I had no idea what it would smell like. And it's so different from uh, Olibanum, 
were from uh, frankincense and are usually relate myrrh to paintings with the adoration of the magi magi i'm not sure how to pronounce it uh, the three kings uh, um, giving their presence their fragrant presence to christ and i love myrrh because it's so it's it's a lot like our national favorite products drop or licorice ah yes candy and it's, I think it's very similar. And that was very surprising to me. Well, that's interesting. You know, I'm going to re-smell that now because yeah. I didn't think about licorice. But you're, when I think about it now, yeah, good idea. I want to go smell my myrrh now. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so tell me about the experience of smelling Dora Goldsmith and Dr. Sean Coughlin's recreation of the famous Mendesian, the perfume that was allegedly used by Cleopatra. Ooh. That experience. Yeah, that was very exciting. Um, <laughs> yeah, and she makes these beautiful Dora Goldsmith, these tiny beautiful jars. With the, it was golden. The color was golden. And then you open it and then you know, okay, I'm about to smell something that's that was very close to Cleopatra, the renowned Cleopatra. And um, if I had to describe it, I would say it's it's very warm. Uh, it gives a tingling sensation, I think, because of the cinnamon. There's a lot of cinnamon in there. And it also has uh, some myrrh. And I think I described it in, in one of my blogs as a perfume fit for the Met Gala. Uh, if you have a yes. <laughs> costume, that's the perfume that you should wear with it. And maybe <laughs> be red I think it should be red then the dress yeah oh that must have been an incredible you can't ex you can't go smell it anywhere now right or can you smell it uh, Dora Goldsmith does uh, still create scent kits I believe for educational purposes so you can order Mendesian I think you can order it at Dora Goldsmith okay all right let's let's talk about your museum work because you do a lot of work with museums right so so scents and odors are a form of storytelling. And again, as I said before, I think in the Netherlands, you're so far ahead in terms of integrating smell into the visual arts in the museums. So can you tell us about some of the exhibits that you've been a part of? Anything that you'd like to share? I'm so curious what some of your favorite exhibits have been. Yeah, um, two, no, already four. Four. Yeah. <laughs> Um, four years ago, we organized an event called the Museum of Smells at the Stedelijk Museum in Amsterdam. And there we exhibited certain uh, scents that were part of avant-garde art, of surrealist exhibitions and futurist happenings. Um, and I enjoyed that a lot. But I think the project In Search of Lost Scents at the Rijksmuseum is one of my favorites because it's, it was a five-year project with uh, almost 10 perfumers um, with, uh, yeah, Rijksmuseum, IFF, and my university, Vrije Universiteit. And IFF created a dozen scents, all inspired by the collection of the Rijksmuseum. Some historically informed, like the Battle of Waterloo, or an 18th century canal house, or an airplane. Others more artistically and synesthetically, like a Rietveld chair. Rietveld was a famous um, member of the Stijl. Okay. It's like Mondrian and uh, Van Doesburg. And the perfumer 
created a scent that was just as clear in construction as the chair. That was a bit uneasy because it was uneasy to sit in this chair. It's called okay. the blue red chair in, uh, in art history. Although it also appears in other colors. Um, and you also smell a bit of the material. So when you smell that in front of that chair, you get a, um, a heightened sensation of the colors and you feel, you know, you can never touch anything in a museum, but when you smell an object, you have the feeling that you're in really close contact with this object. And many people want to touch uh, objects. And this, I think, is a solution for this um, yeah, problem in museums that people always want to touch things. Uh, <laughs> I believe so, they do, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's interesting that you say that. So if they smell it instead, they yeah. will have less of a tendency to touch something. Interesting. Yes, yeah. Then you already have a sensation of being, being in, in, in intimate uh, contact with an object. So let me ask you then, tell me about this knowing by sensing course that you also have. Yeah. I could take it, but I know you have to be <laughs> studying to be an art historian, I think, right? But tell the listeners about this knowing by sensing course that you yeah uh, knowing by sensing as the title suggests is not just about the senses it's about using the senses as analytical tool as an analytical tool um, for knowledge formation for students but also to become more aware of all your your senses in daily life because that brings well-being you're more aware of your environment and you learn to describe what you feel, smell, um, hear. So it's about all the senses, not just about smell. Um, and again, I think I mentioned something similar in the beginning. When you start smelling and start learning to describe smells, you're more... Um, you will more easily recognize olfactory elements in texts. So experience makes you read texts better. Okay. Reading texts make, makes you recognize smell descriptions better. Ah. When smells are described in ancient texts and you actually smell them, you might understand. Hey, now I see why they call this spicy or pungent or eh, although connotations change some elements some formal qualities of, of smell remain the same and um, so that's basically what we do we, we touch we even touch items in the Rijksmuseum. museum uh, we smell historical sense we recreate eau de cologne mm -hmm. uh, we make uh, soundscapes um, so it's very practical yeah but still we we do read texts but it's also practical and this is a course for who? who? Who can take this? It's actually part of the track of uh, medical and health humanity. So um, doctors, future doctors take this course, but we noticed that also a lot of heritage students and art and culture students take this course. Throughout our conversation, you've touched a lot on language and smells. So we... Yeah. We have such a hard time describing smells, right? Just yeah. Human beings. We experience them, but we don't always know how to talk about them. And so you're doing a lot of work around language and smells. Yeah. Tell me about 
the use before we get into other things you're doing right now, but tell me about the use of olfactory language in history. Yeah, there were more words in history, even in the West. Uh, we know that some people um, like the Jahai uh, have more words to describe smells on a formal level. So not just as associations like we do. Oh, it smells like a strawberry or I like the smell or I dislike the smell. That's all on a more subjective level, but they have uh, words for the formal qualities of smell that they all agree upon also okay. there's consensus but in the past in the west there were more words for smells the project that you might have heard of Europa, led by Inger Lehmans um, is all about retrieving olfactory historical words from the 1600s to the 1920s uh, in seven European languages English wow. French Latin, Italian, Slovenian, German, and Dutch. Okay. Fascinating. I can give an example. There, there's this um, smell word by a Dutch scientist, Zwaardemaker, a 19th century scientist. And he uses the term empyrumatic, empyrumatic, for things that smell burnt or smoky. And it can be coffee and also chocolate, uh, maybe vanilla. Um, yeah, smoky things. I, I love that word. And in Dutch, we have a word and that cannot be translated. And it appears that there were many synonyms in the past for this word. And that's muff. And a muff, <laughs> it sounds so sweet, muff. Uh, yeah. so keep, um, and this muff can be the smell of a basement can be the smell of an attic, old clothes, or one of our typical brown cafes, as we call them. Those are cafes where you have a beer and a coffee and where there are Persian rugs on the table. It's very typical. Oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's very old. It's from the 17th century. It has hardly changed. Um, yeah, that smells kind of muff. Maybe old people sometimes can describe, be That's described. Kind of musty, I would say. Of musty, yeah, yeah, but there's the, uh, the wet kind of muff, there's a dry kind yeah. of muff, uh, yeah, different types of muff, yeah. <laughs> Very interesting. And you've done, didn't you create some kind of scent wheel as well? Yes, uh, several, um, a synesthetic scent wheel okay. and uh, a scent, an art historical scent wheel. So then you see descriptions of certain types of paintings like Adam and Eve, Mary of Magdalene, etc., etc. Um, but it starts from the inner circle has smells. So, for example, there's one segment called resin, resinous. Okay. And then you get all the paintings that have anything to do with resin, such as the Adoration of the Kings, eh, who brought frankincense and myrrh, um, or a pomander a jewel that uh, might have contained myrrh. Yeah. And then another category, woody, and then you get all the um, myths that feature woody smells like um, a Daphne who is chased by Apollo and then changes into a laurel tree. Um, yeah. And the other scent wheel, oh, I also made a human breast milk scent wheel. Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. and can we see these somewhere? Are these available to, to look at? Or are you... 
think they're also in my blogs. Okay. And since oh, that's will, yeah, I can, I can, I can maybe upload them on my blog, and then, and then you can see them. Whoa. The synthetic scent wheel is more of a. Um, it's from literature. So I found instances of synesthetic descriptions mm -hmm. of smell, Baudelaire with his green smells, or Marinetti, who speaks about spiraling smells or arches of smell. And I listed all of those and categorized them per sense, uh -huh. seeing, tasting, hearing, touching. There's a lot about hearing, by the way, and a lot oh, about seeing as well. Lots of uh, descriptions in terms of shapes and colors, but also textures, of course. Um, yeah, so that's another <laughs> sand wheel that I uh, created. Uh, those are fascinating. I think those are great. I'll upload the synesthetic sand wheel. I think the, the other one, the um, art historical sand wheel, uh, we're still working on it. That's part of Oderopa. Okay. European sand heritage. So yeah. maybe, yeah, in a later stage, at a later stage, we can also share that one. That's an exciting project, your Odoropa project. Oh, yes. Oh, it's so huge. And, <laughs> <laughs> and of course, many had it built on the experience and the knowledge of so many scent artists or olfactory artists and olfactory historians, such as Constance Klasse and David House, but also artists like Peter de Kupere. And, and we, we all know Sizzle Tolaas. And, uh, but what we, I think what we bring as a novelty is artificial intelligence. So we teach a computer, not me, okay. other people teach yeah. a computer <laughs> how to recognize olfactory events and words in texts and in paintings. So a computer can do that for us. Wow. First we have to teach it, of course, and, but then we'll get a wealth of information, maybe on smells that we overlooked or events that we overlooked in terms of smell. Um, and in 2023, the results will be presented uh, open access. Yeah. Excellent. So, so explain just briefly, I think we got into it right away, but for people who might not know what this project is, can you, can you summarize it just briefly? Sure, yeah. Europa is a word that consists of odeur, French for smell, and Europa, um, in several European languages, that means Europe. And it's about um, retrieving, analyzing, and reconstructing the olfactory heritage of Europe, both Eastern Europe and, and West, Western Europe. And we focus on language, lost words, but also smell communities. Certain smells were part of certain communities that we might not think about anymore maybe religious communities or uh, artisans. And yeah, then there's this computer part where we teach computers how to read texts and collect smells. And then there's the, muse more, the museology part where we um, use smells in museums of visual art and connect those smells to art and give tours and workshops about the sense of smell. So it's it's indeed, it's huge. There are, I think, 40 people all over Europe wor working on this project. And then, so the first part is in 2023, you'll get this data back. And then from that, you'll, will this eventually be a book? A, like what's, what is ah, it? Yes. Um, yeah. 
many things. There will be a book by Will Tullett, an English uh, or a sense historian from the UK. And there will be um, also a vision document that other people can use free, free of uh, charge. Um, so no charge uh, about how to work with smells in the museum. So these are the scents that you can connect to these and these artworks. This is how you can, this, this is the material you will need. Um, this is how you train tour guides, etc. So this is how we're going to get more museums to incorporate yeah. scents into this. Yeah. Oh, that's so exciting. Yeah. <laughs> and other continents can follow, maybe South America or sure. Asia. Um, this is just about Europe. So this will maybe be a blueprint for others and they might do it better than us yeah yeah but it's a place to start it's so exciting yeah. thank you for doing it <laughs> you're welcome <laughs>
All right, I like to ask my guests three questions at the end. So mm -hmm. if you have a few minutes, be great to hear what, what you have to say. Um, what's your favorite smell right now? Just right now, you have one? Basil. Okay, basil. Basil, yeah, that's an old time favorite. Wow. Yeah, it's rich, yeah. Okay, and do you have a favorite scent memory that you can recall or share? Yes, but it's a, a memory of a scent memory. Okay. It's when I thought, oh, I want to be closer to my grandmother who had been gone by then for, for 10 years. And then I remembered her saying, I didn't remember her smell, I remembered her saying, I like the perfume Anais Anais. So I bought Anais Anais and I smelled it and I was so overwhelmed and overcome with emotions because I was sitting next to my grandmother and I thought, how could I have forgotten about this smell? This is you, grandmother. <laughs> it was very, a very beautiful, powerful Christian memory. What would you say are five smells that would describe you, Carl? Five smells that describe me. Ooh. Oh. What comes to mind? It doesn't have to be um, Books. Yeah, definitely the smell of books. Old books, I imagine. Old books, yeah, but also new, new books. Yeah. So that's the second smell, old yeah. books, new books. Yeah. And the smell of uh, diapers. Okay, yeah. Because I have to change a lot of diapers. And the smell, the smell of my, uh, the store downstairs. There's um, uh, a vegetable store. Oh. And another smell that's really me, maybe my hair. Okay. And I think, and this is embarrassing to say, but I have a quite a, a strong body odor. So yeah, here, it's, it's out there, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we're curious, now we're curious. <laughs> oh, that's great, that's great. Well, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. I could probably talk to you for hours. You have so many interesting things to share and the work that you're doing is fascinating and I'm sure it's very rewarding. It sounds like something. Ooh. Yeah, yeah. I love doing that. I would love to get to know more, but I'm going to have everybody check out your blog, your TED Talk. Um, is there any other place that we should connect with you? Are you on social media at all? Do you share things on social media? Um, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. Oh, okay. Well, we'll put all that in the show notes. So if people want to, you know, continue to follow your work, um, we'll put it all there. So thank, thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for your for your questions, thought-provoking questions. Um, I've heard me, myself say things that I've never even thought about. So thank you very much. Thank you for joining me on An Aromatic Life. If you're interested in learning more about your sense of smell from all different perspectives, subscribe to the podcast. And invite your friends too. And it would be really helpful if you could rate the podcast so it helps others find it too. I also invite you to check out my website, falkaromatherapy.com, where you'll find information about workshops, courses, and other programs I offer. And make sure you grab my free audio training, How to Smell to Be Well, which you can download from my website. Until next time, remember to smell everything and have a wonderful day.